0: Hi my friends who listen to Future Primitive I'm um, honored and uh, and excited today to be with Alan Clements and to share our conversation with you. Alan Clements is a world dharma teacher, performing artist, human rights activist and the founder of the World Dharma Vision. As one of the first Westerners to ordain as a Buddhist monk in Burma, he lived in a monastery for many years, training in Buddhist psychology and mindfulness meditation. In 1984, he was forced to leave the country by the dictatorship with no reason given. He has returned numerous times to witness and document the human rights violation. Clemens is the co-founder of the World Dharma Institute, which offers an innovative video training program exploring world dharma, the art and activism of freedom. Alan, I wonder, you have a very, um, very big life and uh, you... uh, play in many different fields so I was wondering if you'd like to say a, mu- a few more things about your life and what you have done and what you are doing
1: well Joanna uh, an honor to be speaking with you uh, thank you for taking the time and thank your listeners for taking the time to you know, share this space together it's just so rare in the world to just breathe and take our time and not being a haste and just, you know, the high art of feeling shared energy. So I really honor your own life and your work and really bringing that to life and having me on your show, on your program. Uh, You know, at this stage of my life, uh, I have a 12-year-old daughter whom occupies my heart, whether I'm in person or away, a great teaching, a great source of light a magnificent dialogue with this young bean and all of her friends. I just delight in it. I travel moderately frequently to very known places, to Hawaii and then the north coast of Australia, to Los Angeles, uh, to Vancouver, where I do workshops. I do public talks. I do uh, a performing solo piece, a piece of satire and. Uh, I would call it more humor than comedy, called spiritually incorrect meets relationship incorrect, The Great Reckoning. I've got three shows actually coming up in Byron Bay early in January Mm -hmm. that will be filmed, and they're going to be the basis of a documentary film based on the show, uh, as well as my life story, which I'm very excited about. Uh, I was in Burma recently, as you mentioned about... Mm -hmm. uh, some of my past work where I've been actively engaged, I would say since 1977 when I first went there, Joanna, Mm -hmm. and was mesmerized by the culture, by the teachings of the Buddha as they were expressed within society. I'd never seen, quite honestly, the beauty of generosity, people openly inviting you into their homes and breaking bread with you, and sharing meals with you, and just really delighting in you as an individual asking questions. Who are you, and where do you come, and what do you think in your background? Very beautiful experience for me. And ultimately, it led me into a monastery. I ordained ultimately in New York and flew off the next day with a couple of Burmese monks and stayed in Rangoon, presently known as Yangon. Of course, I still call it Burma, but many people in the world call it Myanmar, and there in this monastery, started by the Prime Minister at that time, Unu, I embarked upon an intensive period of mindfulness meditation under one of the great meditation teachers of the modern era, Mahasi Sayadaw, and his successor, Sado Upandita. And it's interesting to note, Joanna, that this mm-hmm. particular center in Rangoon, called Mahasi Meditation Center, is actually the epicenter or the seat of the global lay mindfulness movement. Very few people know that mindfulness had a beginning. Uh, obviously, there's tremendous attribution to the teachings of the Buddha, but more in modernity, these teachings were confined to deep monastic settings with nuns and monks in remote regions of South Asia And the Prime Minister of Burma, UNU, along with my first teacher, Mahasi Sayadaw, brought them from the monastery into contemporary urban society. This was in 1947 with 15 students. And I was just there a couple of months ago, you know, in September 2018. And over 2 million people have practiced intensive mindfulness practice in that one center. There's over 300 centers in Burma and many hundreds more around the world. And many Europeans and Asians, Americans, Australians who teach this tradition were trained by teachers of teachers in that particular system. I mean, those are a few things that I do. I still write books. I just came out with a book just two days ago, actually. Mm -hmm. You're the first person to even hear about it, called uh, Wisdom for the World, uh, Mindful Advice for All Nations. And the key line is, The Requisites of Reconciliation. It's a book of conversations, Joanna, with my former meditation teacher, the late Venerable Mahasi Sayadaw, excuse me, the late Venerable Sayadaw Upandita, who was the successor to Mahasi Sayadaw. Nine nights, he called me into his monastery cottage, and we spoke about what does it mean to overcome division, hatred, and empower forgiveness and reconciliation in the face of sometimes abject violence, like in Burma or in any other country where there's been war and turmoil. Uh, and so that was a remarkable set of conversations that have been transcribed and edited and put forth in a book that's going to be made available worldwide as of probably around Christmas. And that's it. I do yoga every day. I meditate when I can. I have a twice-weekly broadcast on FaceTime Live from our my Facebook page and trying to do the best I can here in what appears to be not a particularly favorable topic, but this impending economic collapse, potentially a catastrophic environmental collapse. Yeah. And what does it mean to be the best expression of ourselves, if I dare say, if the planet's in hospice, what do we want to do today? How do we want to behave? How do we want to feel? And whom do we want to do it with? So that's a little bit where my heart is right now, Joanna. It's vulnerable, it's open. It's tender, it's hurt, it's broken. Yeah. I've never cried so much in my life, pretty much every week. Um, losses are felt as insurmountable. And I feel less in less strength, but I have more of an ethical fiber, if you will, at least feel the circumstances, I may not know what to do, but i 'm very willing to feel and i 'm very willing to listen and very willing to ask questions and i 'll close with this in this first part is yes. if I learned anything in my life is that i don 't know, and I really say that without cliche i 've had so many false assumptions broken on the altar of arrogance and uh, have come crumbling down, as you said earlier, like now just a pebble on the beach. Mm-hmm. The shame, the pomposity, the, even the, the the egoism of thinking I was enlightened at one point.
0: Uh-huh.
1: You know, it's just so, you know, I think age and time and if I dare say wisdom inaugurate the heart into the beauty of unknowing and vulnerability, that's where I stand today.
0: Alan, what you were saying was really, uh, was really beautiful. And uh, I love the way you said uh, broken on the altar of arrogance, broken on the altar of entitlement. Yeah. Yes, that's... very, very yeah. much. Yes.
1: We have to uh, come out of the coma of the cult of shelf. I mean, that's sort of how easy it is today to weave ourselves into these strange cave-dwelling spaces from digital social media to the elevation of self through unperceived dogma and developing a clique, a community, a cult of people who collude with us to keep us in denial and fear and look at the Catholic Church, look at the Buddhist Church, look at the Vipassana Church. How many people today in the yoga church, how many people are driven by their denial, by their shame, by their fear, by their entitlement, as you use the word. And they so obviously fail when they begin to coerce, dominate, and, and uh, just violate primarily women. Yeah. Look, at the, look at the carnage that we have seen exposed through the Me Too movement, and gone beyond into the spiritual movement, the yogic movement, the Vipassana movement, the Buddhist movement, the Tibetan teacher's movement. And they're not just casual crimes against women. They're really heinous and unthinkably pathological, if I could say the word. And uh, what a moment we're in to to resurrect, not blame, but to what can we learn in this case? And I come right back to... You know, not what I can teach you to do that's better, but what can I reveal about myself that shares with you the process of my own understanding? Where am I lying? Where am I in deception? Where am I in unknowing? How have I assumed false certainty about places of my own psyche? I think that's the more appropriate form of sharing the Dharma today, sharing our heart and humanness and psyche and source. To me, that's the ultimate sense of entheogen or the psychedelic, how do I not know and how do I collude with that knowing to think that I know and come out of that, that internal psychological hoax called indoctrination. And that's a very important piece of meditation today about, um, or any kind of psychological, spiritual yogic work, is how can I come off the altar of my dogma and come back to my humanness and relate with you on equal terms. Exactly. I mean, I dare say the tradition of tradition, and the tradition of teacher and hierarchy and patriarchy and all that comes from that, uh, may it be over. May each of us participate in that challenge.
0: Yes, I mean, uh, I, I see that since the Me Too movement, I see, I saw before, but I see more than ever that as a woman, I was broken on that altar of entitlement, but but I responded with creating my own forms of entitlement. Mm-hmm. And uh, to find balance in that um, reacting is uh, very tricky. But as you say, I love these words I wrote down that are, well i've been um living with uh with your book a future to believe in mm-hmm. and uh it's terribly poignant at this moment and mm-hmm. and those words two of those words you write uh they're by somebody else uh, enduring vulnerability Mm-hmm,
1: yes 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 enduring vulnerability you know it's Uh, I take a breath hearing that Um, I've been I wanted to say so hurt in the last two years with the death of family and friends but I want to rephrase that to say how human I have become in the face of these inevitabilities of mortality and the loss of tremendous intimacy through death and the passing of loved ones and even the loss of friends and the loss of of a love relationship, mm-hmm. the loss of a country, the loss of my colleagueship and allyship with the 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 international shaming and scapegoating of Aung San Suu Kyi, the Nobel Laureate and democracy icon in Burma and how they've gotten it wrong and so many ways in which I feel where I had been strengthened by these things that I just not took for granted, but participated in wisely as I could. But when they passed and changed, my heart cracked. And the, the resulting feeling has been the exacting words that you use, the enduring vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And it's there that I am abiding today in this deep uncertainty of looking to reclaim unseen parts of myself, to manifest the subtitle of my book? What does it mean to reconcile the differences of my own psyche and source? How can I make amends with people I've hurt? Mm-hmm. How can I cross the divide of anger and arrogance and seek forgiveness mm-hmm. and to ask for forgiveness in those places? You know, I had a my former partner that I was with for almost two years. You know, she and I We were friends for three years prior to us becoming intimate, and we consecrated our relationship on being mindfully awake together and being in deep respect of providing safety and security for one another. The commitment was to bring everything within the dialogue of our intimacy, and we had, you know, I would say one of the most remarkable communions. I wanted to say conversations, but Mm communion of the heart, the soul, and the body that has been a a lasting sense, a lasting resource that, that has continued on, even though the relationship now has changed forms. And what a gift that is in our Dharma today, in our yoga, in our meditation, to see what it means to really show up, not just for ourselves with another, and I beg of myself in this vulnerability to really bring to the forefront of each person I meet, each person I speak with, each person that I touch, and I listen to the very best of my being, because, you know, my mom and dad both died this last year and being in hospice with my mom, you know, it was, there was no, let's connect tomorrow. It was right here, right now. I remember her looking in my eyes and say, Alan, my hands are so arthritic, I can barely even open them. You have good hands. Make sure that you touch someone caring today. Hold hands. And not just say you love them, but say what you love about them. This is the time of release, the time of magic. So Mm -hmm. vulnerability is the precursor Mm -hmm. to me to intimacy, deep intimacy, lasting intimacy a beauty that cannot
0: be taken from us. Right, right, which is what I want to ask you. I, um, I too, have lived at a time in my life an absolute cataract of loss. Mm. And uh, I'm talking about uh, physical loss, people loss, because after the cataract of loss comes... The um, the slow understanding of how I can be human after these uh, after these losses, and so I want to ask you, you who has been through an enormous cataract of loss. It, it, imprevisible loss, as well as natural loss, like appearance. Who are you discovering after these losses?
1: Mm. Well, I am discovering that I'm afraid, that I'm flawed, I'm fraught with foibles, that the person who I thought would build the pyramid of indestructible clarity... And the promise of, you know, existential Buddhism to arrive at pinnacle states of consciousness that could be sustained through practice. That hasn't come tumbling down, but looking for the ascent at the expense of the base is no longer an interest to me. I'm human, I'm earthbound, I'm going to become dust and fossil fuel in this next sixth-grade extinction that some scientists say has happened a thousand times faster than all previous five. I'm humbled by the breath, the vulnerability of this deep interconnectedness, and by instinct beyond my own ability to control the need to sleep, the need to eat, the need to breathe, the necessity to emote and to perceive, and deeply I've recognized in this vulnerability that, Joanna, I cannot be who I am without you. Using the South African term, which is the basis of world dharma and what I do, that Desmond Tutu told me about, we cannot be who we are without each other. I am who I am through you, with you. Whatever makes you alive and more dignified through the emotionality of Ubuntu, I feel it in myself. And with my former partner, we, we... embodied the energy of ubuntu relationship divine became the operating energy of we are in this together i am discovering me through you by being mindfully aware of you in me and that dance of mutuality is just the most remarkable dance in this world is to grow in intimacy To me, that's the new enlightenment, to grow in the bandwidth, the organic experience of shared space. And if I can, I'll I'll just tell one more little brief story. You know, I have a new woman in my life. Her name is Ja Pace. She's a remarkable filmmaker, artist, dancer, um, editor. But most of all, she is a remarkable human being in that she was born with one of the rarest forms of bone marrow disease. And yes, she's terminal. She's in the one percentile of people with this disease that's still alive. She is still young, in her 30s. And some years back, she was taken to... I think it was Rome, where the epicenter, the main hospital where this particular illness, they do bone marrow transplants to help save you. And of the 13 patients, 12 of the 13 died, and she was the 13th in which the bone marrow failed, and they had to put the bone marrow back in. And she lived within a surgical tent for nearly three years after that, where the only hands that could come into the tent were covered and sealed. And, you know, when I first met her, she took off her wig and said, I'm bald because all of her hair now can no longer grow, and she's infertile. And she told me, very remarkably, without a hint of being a victim, Joanna, that every three weeks since I was six years old, I've had to have three pints of blood, And if I don't get those three pints of blood, within one day I die. And that's her destiny in this life. And she went on to say, Alan, those three pints of blood could come from someone young or old, yellow or brown or black or white or fat or skinny or atheist or Buddhist or Muslim, male or female. As long as it's my blood type, That is my life. I am alive because of this one blood. And I carry all people, all life forms inside of me. And I've learned over these years, she said, living with this illness, do not under any circumstance empower blame and hatred because we cannot live without each other. Ubuntu. And what a living example for me when I heard that of how deeply courageous this woman has been, and how symbolic it is to have so much blood in her from other people that she's never met to survive. And are we all in that same kind of anatomy of a globe, and an anatomy of an ecosystem, and an anatomy of life? Who could ever live isolated from each other except through arrogance and ego? And I think that's the ultimate teaching going on in the world right now. I know it's... So often shed of our deep, shared interrelatedness, but can we feel it and abide in it in the most honorable, beautiful, life-sustaining way? Where is there hope in this moment, is the operating question, in the face of the calamity of climate change and economic collapse, our own mortality and the death of 200 species a day. Where is there hope right now? I beg our audience.
0: An extreme vulgarity extreme vulgarity mm. I, I I, want to uh, share two things with you one is I have been saying to people uh, and thinking of your woman dear woman friend courage is the sexiest thing there is yes it's
1: something very remarkable about ethical courage and emotional courage without a doubt
0: and then uh, just to go back a few minutes you mentioned the breath and you gave me a gift when you mentioned the breath because all of a sudden i saw the breath as this this very humble little flower that we completely we completely forget that she is, she is it. She is life. She is the basis of everything, and yet she's so humble. She's just there all the time, uh, and I, yes, yes. I, I never saw her in that, in that sweet, vulnerable, tender, discreet kind of way until you mentioned the word breath.
1: You know, there are so many meditators in the world today. From, they're all over four 500. In fact, I mean, it, it's like a tidal wave of meditators. And you know, having spent a good part of my adult life in a monastery in silence, in meditation, people often ask me what did I learn during those those decades. And in a in one minute, I can sum it up. You're, you're encouraged to watch. Your mind and your body and your breath. In the absence of something predominant, you watch the breathing come in. You watch the breathing go out. You feel the sensations of your breathing. You're being mindful in-breath, out-breath. Expansion of the chest, collapse of the chest, in-breath, out-breath. Easier said than done, but you keep coming back to that gentle process of riding the awareness of those sensations as they come and go. And I went to my teacher after some years, and I said, sir, what is the insight into this process of breathing? And they said, well, I invite you. What is it? And I dared say to him, I'm breathing. And he looked at me with a type of tear in his eye, if you could imagine that, she said, indeed, that is so rare in the world, these are my words, that anyone recognizes that they're breathing. And here it is all around, every living force of human Mm -hmm. life, and probably the animals too, and the birds and the bees, the entire oxygenation of this seven miles high of photonic life. We are living creatures based upon the necessity of lungs and oxygen, Mm -hmm. a deep interrelatedness, obviously. He said, go back and continue your practice. I watched my breath, in breath, out breath, in breath, out breath. I came back some years later, symbolically. He asked me, what is your insight? I said, now that I've been watching my breath for the better part of a year or two or five, it doesn't matter. I'm alive. Yes, because I'm a breathing, I'm alive. And that, he said, was an even more rare insight for people. How obvious it is that we're alive, but so few people, and myself included, you ask me, what did I learn in this vulnerability of the loss of love and family the last two years, is that I am. Alive. I mean, I'm not just an economic-consuming, fetish-driven organism. I'm actually not just teaching Dharma, Buddhism, and writing books. I'm actually alive at vocation. And he went back into my heart and said, Go back in and see what you feel when you go back into a more intimate observation of your breathing. And until for the final months and years, I watched my breath come and go. And the final insight was, now that you're breathing, what will you do, Alan, with a full breath? What will you do with what a full breath affords you? What will you do today in this very precious moment of an hour, a minute, with Joanna and listeners in this life, on this ambient planet, in the turn that the spinning through a sunball 25,000 miles an hour, what will you do with your precious breath, with your hands, with your eyes, with your body? Who will you touch, who will you listen to? Making conscious choices, mindfully intelligent choices on how you want to live, think, and relate. That is the great gift, I think, that I'm learning from all the loss and hardship. Quality time, and who will I spend that quality time with? And what will I do there on that altar of beauty and intimacy?
0: Yes, it's, uh, it's, been my, uh, it's been my wish for a while now to die knowing that I have lived.
1: <laughs> well, you know, you what I know of your life, you have lived and lived well. And you've been blessed by the quality of remarkable contacts and friendships and lovers and your own radical journey. So there is no doubt from the outside looking in at your life, Joanna, that you can not just, whenever that moment happens, die in conscience and die in confidence of having lived. But the invitation that we both share today in this shared space from a few thousand miles apart is what will we do now that we have this organic sense of truth and wisdom circulating through our shared blood and brain and psyche and consciousness on this ambient planet, you know, what will we do? How will we choose to live? And what will we say that's evolutionally larger than anything we've ever known to possibly leave in this kind of psychic field when we perish from climate change or whatever? What will be embedded in the psychological, psychic belt as sediment? so that the next conscious creatures can pick up from this, this, this shared wisdom and go, wow, wow, I'm awake to consciousness. And mm-hmm. that's the great question that really ignited in me when I finally realized consciousness is the question, not only what I see, hear, think, and believe. What is this great invisible matrix? in and around us, and how can we inhabit that matrix like the ecosystem in a wise, liberating, and compassionate way that has a future to believe in, really? So few people ever really think about life unborn. That's been the great calamity of, as it's been said, living in this homicidal economy. It's been so much about the cult of me that we've denied the otherness of the Ubuntu that hasn't yet been born. And now we're at the precipice possibility of a great mass die off, and we're all asking, oh my God, how did we get here? And the hubris of greed, anger, and delusion is the only issue that we can point to to understand the anthropocentric blindness of the human species and how they self annihilated or potentially self annihilated. So that's a very big issue for me. Is to face existential anxiety about the per- perception of the very likely loss of life that is on the horizon. At least by people I study and look at, climate scientists and other people.
0: I, I, I can't uh, continue. Something is nagging me here, and um, it's when you said uh, a little while ago that um, uh, excuse me if I say her name wrong, Ansum li An had been defamed and uh, and uh, harmed uh, uh, can you please um, can you please correct that from your understanding yes,
1: indeed I can I'd be honored to do yes. that you yeah, know, it's I, important. I had the good fortune. I have spent six months with her back in 95 and 96 after her first release from house arrest. We did a book together called The Voice of Hope. I've met her numerous times since then. I'm one very close friend with one of her best friends who's in government with her. I met with him recently in Melbourne when he was there just a few months ago. I was just in Burma two months ago. I have four or five books about Burma. I have 250 hours of footage about Burma. I've interviewed most every known and unknown political prisoner in the last 30 years mm-hmm. um, on film. That We have a four-volume set coming out next year called Burma's Voices of Freedom. 1,500 pages of transcribed interviews with, I would say, the most prominent of the political prisoners from 10 to 20 years in solitary confinement or stuffed in like animals. And Aung San Suu Kyi, those might know that she was 17 years under house detention and also imprisoned. Now, to answer your question, how have they gotten it wrong? I feel that Burma and her is a classic case of, of toxic misogyny, toxic patriarchy, international scapegoating, and downright misinformation about the circumstance and about her. Point two... Having known her and known many of her friends and having lived in that culture on and off for four decades, she has given up everything to embody a nonviolent, feminine-inspired, compassionate presence that has taken a culture that's been dominated by patriarchy and militant dictatorship for five decades and nonviolently confronted the apparatus of that murder machine and successfully got them to stop temporarily to win government, that her NLD party now dominates the governmental apparatus. However, the killing machine of the military is still in place, and the Constitution, what was written by the military, absolutely removes from her and her government any real power. She has no control over the military. She has no control over the police. She has no control over homeland security and border control. And, okay, we have transcribed everything that she has said since she's been released in 2000, um, I think it's in 2012 or 2010. In the early days, she would often speak up about the Rohingya crisis. Right. Even a couple of years ago, she spoke very much about the, the... the necessity for peace and tolerance. Her teacher, Seyed Upandita, is the person I conversed with in my book of conversations that's coming out called Wisdom for the World. She is steeped in nonviolence. She's steeped in feminine-inspired inclusivity. Her government's policy of national reconciliation has one abiding spiritual concept, and this is the key thing. Mm-hmm. By anyone. She refuses to take sides. And when you look at her criticisms by everyone in the international media and a lot of celebrities, she refuses to speak out critically of the harm to the Rohingya people. That's it. She refuses to criticize the military for their defense of the Rakhine state, which was prompted by a little known fact of how 30 police stations and military outposts were simultaneously attacked in August of last year by a jihadist militant Muslim group called ARSA. 30 outposts simultaneously in which they killed Burmese military police and soldiers where Investigative journalists, and you can read this online, have found that Arsenal was funded from militants in Karachi with ties to bin Laden and funding from Saudi Arabia with the jihadist agenda similar to Hamas Mm -hmm. against Israel of a domination of the Burmese culture. And now Burma's military that Aung San Suu Kyi has no power over who had imprisoned her and many of her colleagues for decades and tortured them. Pause there. Remember that it's the Buddhists in Burma that nonviolently struggled with this military government. It's the Buddhists in Burma. Aung San Suu Kyi and 90% of all political prisoners were Buddhists. The Buddhists in Burma are the ones who have been the most persecuted over the last 38 years. She has no power over them. And the military, which I'm not fond of, but there you go, she has a policy of reconciliation and non-condemnation. They chose to do what any country would do in the world, like our country in America. They chose to respond and to root out as best as possible the ARSA militant group, which were civilian-clothed people within the Rohingya population. And these poor Rohingya people that have just been crucified in the middle of this incredible calamity all had to flee based upon this mutual struggle between a militant group and the Burmese army. And I think, frankly, America, look what we did in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Under the pretext of nuclear weapons, we killed or 500,000, is it, civilians have died? And still, to this day, a country is absolutely decimated. Look at Afghanistan, the domination of a culture. That's called ethnic cleansing. Look at Syria and the complicity there with our American-made weapons. Look what's going on in Yemen today with the starvation of most of the people there with the Saudi bombing, with American weapons, scapegoating, misogyny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Burma, the Muslims within the Rohingya population, something like two to 3,000, sadly, that were killed. That's nothing compared to 500,000. That's nothing compared to the tens of thousands in Afghanistan. That's nothing compared to the 12 million displaced refugees and people, 300,000 dead in Syria. Aung San Suu Kyi is an icon of peace, of feminine-inspired nonviolence. If she speaks out in and denigrate the military, you can be sure that that would be the pretext for her incarceration and probably the loss of her government. These are pathological men, I dare say the word, hell-bent with violence. But what she's doing, which is extremely rare in the world, she's saying, I refuse to condemn and vilify. We have a policy of national reconciliation. There's no easy answer. Be patient with us support us in this transition from militant patriarchy and dictatorship into a feminine-inspired democracy where peace can exist. She has her hands overflowing with complexity in the whole world by and large through this remarkable woman and her people under the bus. That's my humble opinion. Yes. Really what they should do is support her and hold the military accountable in every way, shape, and form, to give her more power, more support around the world. And all of what I've just said can be transcribed, and you can look online and find exactly what I've said to corroborate what I've just said. It's not my opinion, it's fact. Does she have faults, Joanna? Listen, I spent six months with her. I've talked to her numerous times after that. Many of her friends, my teacher and her teacher, are the same person. I've been in the same room with her many times. She's the first to admit her faults. Yes, she has a short temper. I have a short temper. Many of us have a short temper. Look at the pressure she's under. But is she violent? Is she complicit with genocide and ethnic cleansing? No. People do not get that she's on a tightrope with one of the highest spiritual agendas known on the planet. Non-vilification. That's it.
0: Non-vilification.
1: Well, non-demonization, non-vilification, non-blame. Only positive expressions of inclusivity. Bring the divide closer together is our agenda. You know, look at our country. By and large, many Americans, whether they're open or not about it, dislike Muslims. Look at Israel and Palestine. Look at the onslaught of Islam around the world. I've been in Afghanistan. I've been in Iraq. I've been in Pakistan, I've been in Turkey. It is not easy to be there with a girlfriend, a white woman. It's crazy. You know, I'm an open-minded, multi-faith individual. But, you know, when you have someone like you have Hamas declared an agenda to the annihilation of Israel, I think Benjamin Netanyahu and anyone in his government has a right to defend their people. And it's not an easy task to be a politician. I don't know that I could handle that. In Burma, to champion nonviolence in the face of the world's collective obsession with violence, Aung San Suu Kyi is a nonviolent activist. For God's sake, where do we see that in politics today? So So I think she's still more remarkable today than ever. And maybe that's my filtered opinion, but I stand on it.
0: Okay, um I'm very glad that uh, that you spoke this. So maybe approaching the closing of our conversation we could talk about what is freedom and um what is the road to freedom, What is the courage cost of freedom?
1: Well, you look at the philosopher Isaiah Berlin, he talked about two types of freedom, positive and negative freedom. You know, there's the negative freedom of overcoming the forces of denigration inside and out, overcoming fear, overcoming anger, overcoming greed discrimination, all forms of it, from mild to toxic. But that is just the absence of toxicity in the mind. And the positive expression of freedom is to look at the mind and life and human environmental rights like a flower, and you don't examine the darkness between the petals for the flower to open or blossom. You nurture the flower. You nurture society. You nurture the environment. You nurture the human heart you nurture intimacy. And what is that? In this simile, you, what is the light of consciousness? What is the water of consciousness? What is the, the soil of the minerals of consciousness? What is the, the oxygen of consciousness? And to me, the oxygen and these minerals and light are all about positive transformational qualities of consciousness. I call them mindful intelligence. Really what they point to is the power of love, the power of generosity, The power of intimacy, the power of reconciliation, the power of trust, the power of compassion. Just simply taking the power of empathy, the ability to put my heart and mind into the heart and mind of another and ask myself the humble question, how would I like to be received at this moment now? How would I like to be treated? So these positive transformational elements of society and consciousness and environment to me, that is called world dharma, a dharma beyond dogma, beyond philosophy, beyond religion, beyond belief. You know, I was in the war during the last year of the three-way ethnic cleansing, to answer this question on freedom. Mm-hmm. In Yugoslavia, I was based in Zagreb. I was invited there by a friend who worked for the United Nations High Commission on Refugee Resettlement. And I was also hired to write a film. A feature film on what is love in the time of genocide, which I did call Burning, and I was there for a year. And you know, you're 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 circled by warring soldiers. And over the months, Joanna, you have the Bosnian Serbs and the Croatian Catholics and the Bosnian Muslims. It's a three-way ethnic cleansing. It was so so convulsive to sensibilities to be in that context. But what I learned post-war, going to Sarajevo the first few days after the ceasefire. And may you remember, or others may remember, that in Srebrenica, the town of Srebrenica, in Mm -hmm. in the soccer stadium where the Dutch peacekeeping forces were protecting the thousands of Muslim boys and girls and women in this stadium from potential murder, well, they were attacked and the Dutch peacekeeping forces abandoned them and the Bosnian Serbs separated the men and boys from the women. And they killed 8,000 Muslim men and boys in a matter of two days. And my friend and I, who worked for the United Nations, we drove out there. And we saw these graves. It was beyond belief to think and see that human beings, us, this interrelated phenomena called life known as seven billion of us with these different religions and languages all pulsating on this planet, killed like this. And we think of the Holocaust. We think of East Timor. We think of all the various mm-hmm. massacres Ken kensar we hanging in Nigeria. We think of everything that's gone down in the name of righteousness and truth and ism and my understanding of the right way to bring freedom to the world. Everything gets done through this unfiltered patriarchy and domination called, I'm willing to kill in the name of my religion. And I saw that for the first time in this mass grave. And there you could see a hand sticking out of the the soil of putrefying flesh. And I swear I saw a ring on that finger, and I saw for the first time that I too could kill. I too could dominate another person if I let myself attach to a belief system of the rightness of my religion, the lightness of my truth. One of the great learnings in that society, as I heard from people who lived and survived, was we could not believe it was happening, but we saw even among family the flames of ethnicity and xenophobia metastasized into belief systems. We even killed members of our own family to protect us from genocide. And it was just madness, and I thought to myself, if I can do that, I have to look deep inside and prevent myself from that mechanism in the human psyche of attachment to a belief system Mm -hmm. that could kill in the name of truth, my truth, my Islam, my Christianity, my Mm -hmm. Buddhism. And right there, I stopped being a Buddhist and became, for the first time in 1993, a vulnerable human being beyond belief, beyond philosophy. I wanted to know myself for the first time. Ubuntu, I cannot be who I am without you, takes me from the pedestal of my self-certainty and puts me in an empathetic relationship with other. And right there, that's the highest freedom, is the humility to feel that we cannot be who we are without each other. The absence of Ubuntu, the absence of world dharma, is hierarchy, patriarchy, domination, violence and murder, and potentially planetary death. So positive freedom, how well do I live today using my voice of love? How well do I live today using my voice of compassion? How well do I use my voice of patience and determination? And what vision do I have that I want to put forth for the children, the birds, the butterflies, the trees, the life that's still unborn? Mm -hmm. We have a far-reaching compassion, and to me that's the highest freedom is the compassion to see beyond the horizon of my own needs and my own fears, my own mortality, and do something with what a full breath affords you to do today to preserve life as best as possible and to live the good life in this moment with whom you choose, mindfully intimate, in-breath, out-breath. How do we want to serve each other, feel each other, kiss each other, hold hands with each other, forgive each other, come back together again as lovers of the heart? A transcendent beauty right here, right now, by learning the vulnerability of breathing. In breath, out breath. You never know when it will stop, but it will.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much, Alan. I, I, I feel that this is uh, a moment for us to go our ways, and I'm so grateful that uh, we touched here and we touched here so we could touch as many people who will listen to this
1: Thank you from my heart for the moment, and I thank listeners for listening, and um, may you be well, and thank you for the opportunity.